It's April 16, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we cover the geek beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Jay Fidel from ThinkTech to tell us about an upcoming discussion of new technology in Hawaii agriculture. Finally, we'll find out how three independent schools are fostering innovation in education. Have your questions and comments ready to call in or tweet us. But first, the headlines. Well, a flying saucer will appear in Hawaii skies in the coming months. NASA is moving forward with plans to test its new low-density supersonic decelerator system that the Navy's, at the Navy's uh, Pacific Missile Range facility on Kauai in June. The LDSD is designed to help NASA land larger payloads on other planets, looking ahead to manned expeditions to Mars. But before attempting that, the space agency hopes to test the system seven times over the next two years. For this summer's test off Kauai, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory will use a balloon to lift its test vehicle more than 22 miles into the stratosphere. From there, rockets will fire to push the test vehicle another seven to eight miles up at supersonic speeds. Finally, the engines will shut off and the test vehicle will freefall back toward Earth, reaching speeds of about 2,600 miles per hour, or Mach 3.5. It is then that the LDS system will be deployed, and the device, an inflatable disc 20 to 26 feet in diameter, looks like a flying saucer. Well, the LDSD will slow the descent to about Mach 2, slow enough to deploy a giant parachute almost 100 feet in diameter that should allow the relative, uh, relatively safe landing on Mars with a much thinner atmosphere than Earth for up to three tons of cargo with an accuracy of less than two miles. That's twice the payload that current systems like the parachute-to-sky crane system used to land the Curiosity on Mars two years ago with three times the accuracy. Uh, but before sending the system to Mars, possibly as early as 2018, it will be tested in Hawaii over the next three years. Now, you know, uh, if you look at some video of how they're currently sort of testing this, uh, this disc, which really houses the um, parachute, uh, they have to do some really special things in order to simulate this this um, supersonic descent. And, you know, they said normally that these parachutes are tested inside a wind tunnel, but because it's so huge, they have to do it outside. Right, right. Now, they did show off this uh, this basically this flying saucer on April 9th in Pasadena. So there were a lot of pictures from journalists, and it does basically look like a giant flying saucer out of uh, uh, War of the Worlds or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're going to be doing these verification tests this year and supersonic speed tests next year and the year that follows. But it is about landing larger payloads. When we talked about the sky, sky crane mm-hmm. system that they used for uh, the last Mars landing, that was pushing the limits of how much weight you could uh, allow to land safely. And we're talking about something much, much bigger. Bigger. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a fascinating system. It's almost like it, it does remind me of some of the things that that even high school students try to do, right? Try to design a system to allow X weight to fall this distance without breaking, like an egg or something. Yeah, this is like the part of the <laughs> ultimate dream for any maker to get involved with this project. Right, and, absolutely. And uh, I, I'm just kind of curious because I'm curious to see if they start testing it over at the Pacific Missile Range, if it's actually going to like land in the ocean, hmm. how are they going to recover you know, this, uh, this disc? We'll be watching. 
From outer space to the deepest part of the ocean, a 40-day deep-sea research expedition kicked off this past Saturday with an international team of researchers led in part by a scientist from the University of Hawaii. Their destination is the Kermadec Trench, located off New Zealand. The trench is the second-deepest oceanic trench on the planet, reaching nearly 33,000 feet, or more than six miles, below sea level. And thanks to an inflow of deep water from Antarctica, it's also one of the coldest trenches as well. This mission is the first in a three-year research project. Well, the Hadal Ecosystem Studies uh, Project, or Hades, is funded by the National Science Foundation. Jeff uh, Drazen of University of Hawaii is one of the three principal investigators in what is said to be the first systematic study of life in ocean trenches, life that somehow survives in crushing pressures of 15,000 pounds per square inch. Drazen said in a statement, the energy requirements of hadal animals have never been measured. The challenge is to determine whether life in the trenches holds novel evolutionary pathways that are distinct from others in the oceans. The current expedition is aboard the research vessel Thomas G. Thompson and will use the deep-sea exploration vessel Narius. The team will conduct research at 15 stations along the trench, deploying free-falling, baited imaging landers fitted with experimental equipment. The Narius will stream images from the deep to the surface via fiber-optic cable about the width of a human hair, more of a filament than a cable, and the telepresence technology aboard the Thompson will allow the team to share its discoveries with the world via live streaming, photos, and blog updates. Well, you know, this is uh, uh, unmanned, and, you know, like James Cameron went down and uh, went into the uh, Marianas Trench. Uh, but this is going pretty deep in some very, very cold water. In fact, they call it Hadal because Hadal is like the, the bottom, most bottomest area. This is an <laughs> area called the uh, abyssopelagic area. Abyssal pelagic. Well, and I like that they call the, the project the acronyms. The scientists love their acronyms. It's called Hades. Mm. <laughs> now, you know, we're talking about uh, exploration in space. You know, again, we're talking about underwater trenches. They're the most un- underexplored areas mm-hmm. on our planet's surface. And when you do see some of the pictures that you get from these trenches of some of the creatures that survive in complete darkness um, without any, you know, heat of all uh, or light, they look kind of alien. I mean, so the kinds of things that they're going to be looking for are pretty pretty spectacular as far as uh, and, and life to- to imagine living in 15,000 pounds of pressure, I mean, that is unbelievable. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they're going to be, again, posting things online. You can go to WHOI, that's Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, .edu, slash Hades. Um, they're posting updates regularly. Today's update was a video of some of these creatures, mm-hmm. and the title of the post was Eat or Be Eaten. So oh, I think great. they have a good taste, a, a good <laughs> sense of the dramatic there. Well, densely populated cities of cement and glass are often assumed to be barren wastelands when it comes to natural biodiversity. The arch enemy of plants and animals that thrive in nature preserves or places uninhabited by humans. But a new report released last week found a surprising number of plant and animal species thriving across 147 cities surveyed in the study. Hundreds of bird species and thousands of plant species, in fact, can flourish in cities. Originally published in a Royal Society of Biological Sciences, the findings were highlighted earlier this month in the science journal Nature. The researchers did find a few species that were shared across cities, such as pigeons and annual meadow grass, but the researchers found the mix of species in cities generally reflect the unique biotic heritage of their geographic location. And overall, they did find that cities supported far fewer species than expected for similar areas of undeveloped land. 
Well, about 92% less for birds, in fact, and 75% less for native plants. And unlike previous research on urban biodiversity, this study looked beyond the local impacts of urbanization and considers overall impacts on global biodiversity. Among the contributors were Chris Lepsik, an associate professor over at the University of Hawaii. He said in a statement, cities and urban areas are not as devoid of biodiversity as we may think. Our findings indicate that cities provide habitat for a number of plants and animals. Now, when I read this, I thought, well, what about Honolulu? And Mm -hmm. what kinds of, uh, let's say, native plants and and animals might I see in our sort of native, uh, I mean, in our urban environment? And, of course, the only two (laughs) bird species that came to mind were, and these aren't, I mean, these are more indigenous, I think, but uh, there's the fairy tern, which turns out it's it's a um, a white bird that you'll see around Iolani Palace and the capital. And it turns out that on the on the Hawaiian Islands, it's Oahu is like the only place it it flies around and nests. I mean, outside of places like Midway, which is far away. And the other one is, of course, the uh, the black crowned night heron, which is all around Alamoana Park. I mm-hmm. see it all the time when I run. So they're saying that you know cities will uh, have they do they are bad for biodiversity in general in the sense that they support fewer species. But if there's a species that's endemic to the area, they generally adapt and can live in the urban environment. So you know they talk about the uh, Central Park effect and things like that. But mm-hmm. certainly preserving green spaces in cities is a big part of the survival of these species. And one of the things they were focusing on this study. Well, I think, you know, I, I just one, – one last point in Hawaii and especially in Honolulu, I think is, is, it's um, much harder by orders of magnitude because I think most of the native species in Hawaii uh, have been pretty, you know, sensitized to a very natural environment mm-hmm. as opposed to this urban environment. Well, I would say, yeah, us arriving is a yeah. fairly recent <laughs> phenomenon. <laughs> Finally, papaya ring spot virus, which wiped out half the Big Island crop of papayas in the 1990s, is now relatively rare. But researchers at the College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources want to know where the disease still persists in Honolulu. So they've created the Pick a Papaya app for both iOS and Android to help papaya growers to send in photos of their plants for a free diagnosis of papaya ring spot virus, or PRSV, and help create a map to show the distribution of infected plants. Well, as an added incentive, the research project offers free papaya seeds to users who want to replace papaya plants diagnosed with PRSV. And people can even send in a leaf sample to test whether the plant is a genetically engineered variety. The app and outreach program that's free to the public is aimed at determining how many papaya plants growing in home gardens or public areas are infected with PRSV, susceptible to the disease, or are genetically engineered. The papaya industry rebounded with the introduction of the rainbow papaya in 1998, engineered to resist the virus by CITAR and colleagues at Cornell University and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It accounted for half the state's commercial papaya crop by 2002. Rainbow papaya and a subsequent sun-up variety accounted for 76 Seven percent of the papaya industry's crop by 2009. Program participants can get seeds of either variety or non-genetically engineered seeds for partial virus-tolerant plants. Now, uh, Scott Nelson, who has uh, rolled this app out, has also rolled out the uh, the Plant Doctor app, and mm-hmm. uh, we're going to have him on the show next week. Uh, you know, and the the uh, Pick a Papaya app is pretty pretty straightforward. I mean, you can load it up; it's free. You just basically take a picture of the 
uh, papaya and papaya leaves and send it in, and, and then uh, they will basically take all those photos and aggregate them and take a look at the, where the mapping, you know, mapping is uh, re- relative to where those papaya are right. located. So if you've got a papaya plant in your yard or if there's one in the median of the street by your house, take a picture, send it in, and it'll help them out. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a couple of quick uh, stories we wanted to share with you. The website that showed you camera shots along the highways into Honolulu is going mobile up until now. Routeview.honolulu.gov was only available as a web app. But just this uh, past week, local app developer James Wang and his company Slickage Studios released the iOS version. The app pulls the latest images from Go Akamai camera set up by the city and county of Honolulu. Just go to the iTunes App Store and search for Route View HNL. And an important note about those uh, for those who might be attending the Civic Accelerator Demo Day, which is coming up this Saturday, April 19th, by popular demand. The venue has changed, and the event will now be held at the Box Jelly in Kaka'ako. Um, Bert will be coordinating the event. They'll be showcasing applications built that are based on campaign spending data. You'll see eight teams that are going to show what they've built over the last three months. The event is free and you can still sign up at civiccelerator.eventbrite.com. And now joining us here in the studio is Jay Fidel from ThinkTech and he's here to tell us about the new tech in Hawaii agriculture. Welcome to the show, Jay. Hey, Bert. Hey, Ryan. Nice to be here. Nice to be with you guys. Yeah, Always well, good to have you yeah. in the studio. <laughs> it's been a while. So, Jay, you know, even though we haven't had you on the show for a while, I know you've been really busy doing all kinds of uh, programs and content creation. You've got your show on uh, uh, you know, Think Tech and a radio program, and as, as well as, I think, a, a column in the newspaper. But tell us about this panel that's coming up. Uh, panel, okay, uh, April 23rd, so Wednesday next week. Is there a new tech uh, taking us to a new time for agriculture in Hawaii? And hint, could that be aquaculture? Of course, there's a possibility that it could be uh, hydroponics or aquaponics as well. Uh, so this is 11.30 a.m. for lunch, uh, 12 noon to 1.30 p.m. on Wednesday. Um, and it's at the Laniakea, mm-hmm. downtown Y. So again, the kind of agriculture that we had before is over. You know, plantations are over. Nobody wants to go back there. And the question is whether we can do diversified agriculture, you know, now. Nobody wants to get his hands dirty. So the question is, how do you move that generation you were talking about onto the farm? And is the farm the same kind of farm as it used to be? Answer, no. Technology rules. Technology makes this possible. And so we assembled a bunch of panelists who can talk about new technology in various aspects of agriculture and a renaissance maybe. Maybe we have a renaissance uh, where people will go out, make lives, make, make, make families, make careers in agriculture again in Hawaii. You know, there's a, there's a question coming up in a program on PBS on May 1st about salvation of the economy. What are the candidates to provide salvation of our economy? And, you know, there are obviously a number of uh, candidates. One, I suppose, would be tech. Another would be medicine. Another would be fashion. Another would be energy, exporting energy. It's possible. And agriculture somehow fits in all of that, along with hotels and construction, of course, real estate, land-based economy. So the question is, where do they fit? Is it everything? You know, like in energy, everybody says, what's well, everything? All comers are welcome. Are all these comers welcome? And where does agriculture fit? Mm-hmm. So we, we're going to explore it with Maria Gallo. Maria Gallo is the dean of CITAR, you know, College of Tropical Ag- Agriculture and Human Resources at UH Manoa. She's our uh, moderator. And then we have Jessica Woolley, representative, and she's the chair of the House Agricultural Committee. We have Dong Fang Deng. She's at Oceanic Institute doing seeds. 
uh, and research there. They're you know connected with HPU, but they also have owners from China. So this is a very important research organization. Alan Everson, he's with NOAA. He's the aquaculture coordinator here in Hawaii in the region. And per this conversation you guys had in your news segment, we have Dennis Gonzalez. Dennis Gonzalez, I don't know if you've had him on your show, but he's an amazing man. He's a local guy, went to Kamehameha Schools, and he saved papaya in Hawaii. He's the one with others. Uh, but effectively, he came back from uh, Cornell and did the research right here and saved it with the rainbow papaya that mm-hmm, you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And he's our, he's our uh, guest, our panelist. We have uh, Gavin Key. He works on Kampachi Farms in Kona, mm. and he's going to come and talk about well, the research being done there. We have Fred Lau, an aquaponics farmer in Mililani. It's called Mari's Gardens. It's the biggest aquaponics farm in the state. And he is a really open-minded guy, you know, who reaches out, finds new technology, incorporates it in his business, and he's expanding big time. He's going to be a major player in that. And we have Todd Lowe. Uh, with the Department of Agriculture. He runs aquaculture and other related kinds of non-conventional agriculture in the state. So, that's okay, a full I, mean, I was about to say, <laughs> that is an incredible slate of really in, uh, smart and and experienced people in this area. So clearly this panel is going to last about seven hours and uh, no breaks, right? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are greeting good at really making it efficient. Okay, we give them five minutes, and then we have the moderator ask them a question or two. And then we have actually we have people make comments, and this time we're going to have an automated Q&A system where everybody in the room uh, gets on a smartphone, poses oh, oh, questions. Is that, is that live sift? Sounds like live sift. You oh, know, okay, right, okay. you know. <laughs> Alex Burgo, yeah? Yeah, yeah. he's going to help us do that. So we're going to put tech in on, the, on, the, uh, on making it efficient so we can squeeze it all within 90 minutes. We work very fast, Ryan. Well, that's no. good. You know, it, was, uh, it was on your show that I, I believe the news was broken that uh, Robbie Melton was coming aboard as, as the new CEO of HTDC and even her background with her time at the Maryland Technology Transfer Office was and, and even before that when she was in Hawaii at UH she had a lot of experience in agriculture and technology and she I think is also someone who's very passionate about how something that sounds old school or sounds traditional or sounds salt of the earth can still be forward looking still be high tech and still be attractive to the next generation well you know you guys know uh, we all know that tech changes everything you take a, a business and you put tech on it it's not the same business it's a different business. So agriculture, it's not agriculture like it used to be. It's a new agriculture. And it's fun, and it's productive, and it saves us. That's what. So, so if you were to, um, in a nutshell, like maybe in <clears throat> uh, 30 seconds or less, what would you want to see the audience come away with? Is it just information, or can they do something? Oh, yeah. There's always an action point. Okay. We must have an action point. And the action point is find incentives. Find a way, find a way the legislature you know, can actually incentivize and encourage the development of this industry uh, and tell people – and we're going to you know, try to get the word out on everything that's said. Tell people that, they, yes, they can do this. Yes, they can go to school and learn it. They can be expert in it, and they can create a nice a career out of it. And this is something they should consider as a career possibility. Okay. So where can people find out more information and sign up You for? always ask that question. Ah, well, you know, I've told you everything, actually, Bert. No. I know you did. Early on, you did. I, like, I want you to repeat that. ThinkTechHawaii.com has an article about it, and uh, you can sign up if you want there, and you can look at some videos there on exactly how this program is going to work. Sounds good. Thanks, Jay, for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. Always nice.
And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Brian Dote, Casey Agena, and Josh Rupin. What can schools innovate on and what are independent schools in Hawaii doing to make that a reality? We'd, of course, love your ideas. As part of the conversation, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or you can reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, you can tweet us your questions at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Which of HPR's talk shows do you really love? And how many times have you had to miss it because of conflicts? Did you know you can subscribe to the talk show podcasts and listen to the show on your own schedule? Nothing could be easier. Just go to hawaiipublicradio.org and click on podcasts in the sidebar. You can subscribe right there and get HPR to go. The HPR website, it's just a click away. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Wes Skoopnisker, author of Crazy Wisdom Saves the World Again. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about evolution, and I'll change your synapses and make you laugh and entice you to be here. Wow. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Brian Dote, Casey Agena, and Josh Rapun. Brian is the recently hired Chief Innovation Officer at Mid-Pacific Institute. He's also an iOS app developer and previously worked at Apple and Arcanoetics. Casey, meanwhile, is the Director of Summer School at Punahou. And Josh heads up the Education Innovative Innovation Lab at Iolani Schools. And what is innovation as a uh, growing emphasis in schools? Uh, we'd love to hear your questions and comments about that. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 on the neighbor islands. Brian, Casey, and Josh, we want to welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we'll start with, uh, I know we got three very handsome young men here, and we want to you know, get them to share their thoughts about innovation. And we'll start with Brian since he's got a recently hired this chief innovation officer. I haven't really heard about that kind of a position being made available in a school, but maybe... Tell us a little bit about how that got uh, created. Well, I think, uh, like you mentioned, innovation is everywhere in education. And, um, you know, Dr. Turnbull, the new president at MPI, had a vision of bringing innovation throughout the entire campus from, from K to 12 in, in really in everything that we do. And so the best way to do that is to bring in an innovation officer that can manage and oversee and sort of implement these programs for innovation throughout the campus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What well, I'd like to get your guys, um, Josh and, and, and Casey, your thoughts on uh, innovation within your respective schools. Josh, you're over at the Iolani. We spend quite a bit of time over at the Sullivan Center. It's a beautiful facility, and, and it's really, in fact, I think it's called the Sullivan Center for Innovation, and I forget the second thing. Innovation and leadership. Yeah, <laughs> leadership. Yeah, so amazingly, the, the building is actually almost a year in use. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't believe it it's went. in a year? A year. We're coming to the end of the first year of people occupying this building. Um, it only took a year to build, which was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we've been in the building for a year. And um, it's truly been an engine for change on campus. It's truly been an, an innovation engine on campus. And um, I, I'm not sure that that's the way that it was originally conceived. I think that it was originally conceived as the Sullivan Center for Applied Studies. 
Hmm. Um, but over the course of time, when Dr. Tim Cottrell came on board um, and did some work with the Sullivan uh, family, it was changed to, um, with their permission, the Sullivan Center for Innovation and Leadership. Mm-hmm. We formed a new department within the building called the I Department. Um, so it's a new department within all the departments on campus. And the I Department is applied study. So you can see how they, they put that into a, its own little category and then broaden the scope of the building itself. And so, yeah, it's been an engine for innovation on campus, and I've seen it for Sam. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly it's a physical manifestation of that emphasis and focus and the priority placed on innovation uh, at your school. And Casey over at Puno, I know there's a lot of new buildings there as well, and I would imagine technology and innovation is a big part of what's driving that growth. Well, it's happening not just during the academic year, and then I see that in my role, uh, especially during the summer, where... Um, I think it's unique during the summer where uh, our summer school program not only has our Punahou students um, who are there during the academic year, but it's more like a community school as well where uh, you know over 50% of the student body is from other schools where they go to other schools during the academic year. So it's a really unique opportunity to have kids from Punahou as well as a broader community working in one place. And um, I think to take some of the innovation, um, academic opportunities that we've Mm. been working on to then try it out and uh, use the summer as a time and a place of innovation that can really impact the teachers who are there, the kids who are there, and ultimately uh, put a whole school from beyond. Now, I'm kind of curious, and I want to get your feedback, uh, all three of you, in terms of innovation. And and oftentimes, innovation gets batted around. It's, uh, It's probably a term that Every company in Hawaii, every organization wants to be more innovative. And in the school environment where at the, you know, at the end of the day, you really want to get the kids to be able to either be good at uh, the subject matters that they're learning, take tests and, you know, grade high. And ultimately, in, case of, in the case of high schools, you know, get accepted to college. So I'm, I'm curious from all three of you, what is it that you see as being sort of innovation uh, in the context of a traditional learning environment? Uh, For me, I think innovation, you know, in the context of a traditional learning environment or even outside in the industry, innovation to me really is the ability to what I'll call connect the dots. And and the dots can be, you know, very different things. Um, when, When we were kids, do you guys remember putting on your bicycles, the the um, playing cards, cards yeah, 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 with the clothespin. So to, to me, that's innovation, right? You've took you've taken something that has nothing to do with bicycles, and you took your bicycle and you wanted to make it sound like a motorcycle, and you put you connected the dots between two different things, and you came up with something that was cool and fun, mm-hmm. and then all your neighbors copied and everyone did it. But that's innovation, and and that happens in the classroom, outside of the classroom, that happens in the industry, that happens everywhere. And you just need to be able to see how I can take something from a different realm. And make it work for what I'm trying to achieve. So it doesn't necessarily need to be technology, but many times it is. How can I use technology in a different or better way to enhance learning in the in the classroom? Mm-hmm. Now, Josh, I, I don't want to have you say, um, you know, exactly what <laughs> Brian <laughs> said. So can you <laughs> share your thoughts on how you know innovation in this sort of traditional environment, uh, education environment, might uh, uh, be be um, actualized? Well, actually, I think if, if you don't mind, I'll take a slightly different sure, track to that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I discovered when I started doing this job, um, working in the Education Innovation Lab, was that there was an assumption, uh, maybe it's true in other independent schools, it, was, it seemed to be true at Iolani, 
that there was no innovation going on and that uh, we were embarking on this great journey of, of innovation. Hmm. And um, I, I challenged that assumption in myself right from the very beginning. And what I discovered is we went out and tried to do the usual ed tech work, which is supporting teachers as they implement technology. And we had put together a one-to-one iPad program and put it online relatively quickly, which just within a few weeks, um, was that there was already innovation happening on campus. And one of the things that you have to do to build innovation, which is not just doing the lesson differently every single time um, for the sake of doing it differently, but doing it in such a way that it's really focused on the kids and what the kids would like in terms of their own actualization in the classroom, you know, what I discovered was it was already happening on campus. And so one of the key elements to making innovation happen, especially in the upper school and especially before the kids go off to campus, is to tell the stories on campus of those kinds of innovations. And that's the work that I've been doing lately is I've created a blog um, using Blogger and then um, have been essentially capturing those stories and putting them out to the faculty um, every Friday in a blast. And and so a lot more faculty at Ilani are now aware of what's going on in the other classrooms. Now that's starting to get them to work together and to do different things together. And I think then you get that kind of uh, flywheel of innovation going. Mm-hmm. Now, Casey, I like what you said about summer programs. That it's a little bit outside of the box that a student might be in for the regular academic year. So it already kind of opens their mind to thinking a little differently. But from your perspective, in terms of the students at Punahou and some of the programs they have available, um, how are you? How do you see innovation as being fostered in? Already what some might say is a, is a staid and, and kind of established process. How do you get those students to think outside of the box? Well, I'm going to uh, you know, piggyback on um, what Brian and Josh are saying. And uh, I think, you know, I, I think during the academic year we're kind of we're on the bike. And we're just on the bike and we're going from point A to point B. And uh, uh, during the summer I, it seems that we're able to provide the card and the clip. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, you can't do that all the time because sometimes you have to go fast and slow. But there's this time where you want to just have fun and do something different. So where is that time and place where I can put the card and the clip on? And so uh, I, I think that's what we've been able to kind of build uh, during the summer and uh, being able to connect with uh, um, other schools as well and to do that uh, during this time and place where it's okay to do that. We're going we're gonna to ask you about some of those programs that are coming up. Uh, we're talking to Casey again from Punahou, Josh Rapun from Iolani, and Brian Dote from Mid-Pacific Institute. And we've got a, uh, well, actually, for all of our listeners, uh, if you have a question for this esteemed panel, give us a call here. Number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one 941 3689 You know, we're getting a bunch of uh, questions uh, from Mark Hines, who We've uh, talked to many years, and, and he's been the uh, school school of the futures uh, kind of point person, and he has been uh, sending in some questions via Twitter. And one of them is, uh, you know, for the panel, what are some of the um, one or two of the big questions that keep you up at night about how schools need to innovate? That's Mark's <laughs> Mark's question to you three guys. Uh, anybody want to take a jump? Well, actually, I, I since Mark is from. Mid Pacific. I mean, maybe you want to take it. <laughs> so there's, there's two two of them, right? And so I'll take one, and then I'll, I'll let someone else take the other. But uh, the thing that keeps me up at night is is how do you measure innovation? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. How do you quantify it, and how do you know that you're heading down the right path? And so, 
we can all we can all you know I can talk about connecting the dots and providing the dots and building the programs and all of that stuff. But how do we measure? How do we measure the innovation such that we can say we're doing better? Are we doing better this year than last year? Have we improved? And how much have we improved by? And and how do you how do you measure that? It's sort of in a similar vein. How do you measure engagement? And, and so I think I think that's a challenge. I I don't know the answer. Maybe someone has the answer. I'd love I'd love to hear it. Um, but if you can sort of quantify it or measure it, you know we can see the output. But how do we know how how much we're improving? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can actually um, give you, if you don't mind, a specific example. Um, we had a presentation by uh, the first floor, first floor folks down at the, the Sullivan Center. That's the makerspace, the robotics area, and 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 all of that stuff is going on. And um, they did a presentation about the kinds of things that they could do to support other teachers when they wanted to do specific kinds of projects coming into the building. As you mentioned, Casey, there's a place that they can go. So a teacher who happened to be there who teaches world uh, uh, ancient civilizations. He, he really got sparked by that. And so he brought his kids down uh, to that first floor, and they made games, ancient games. And using the laser technology and whatever else was down there that I don't necessarily understand, um, they created these games. And then they went up to the fourth floor, and they actually played these games, and then they had discussions you know, based around that. So I think that's the kind of thing that's in, in, in extremely difficult to quantify. Mm-hmm. How do you quantify learning in a situation like that except in a traditional method, which is on a test? And how do you know what those kids went through playing those ancient games and having a great time both making them and playing them? How do you know that that was a part of the process? You know, so. Well, it, I mean, I, I think it is about what you just said about making it. And when a, when a student can point to this and say, like, I did this or I made this and um, you know, I, you know, I, I think we've been able to, uh, you know, what Brian said, like blur those lines, um, um, providing opportunities not with just within school, but blurring that lines between school and beyond school. Um, I know that uh, um, you know you folks had some talk uh, uh, past couple of weeks about Maker Fair and, mm-hmm. and having those kinds of opportunities where kids can make, and it's on campus and we're finding times and places currently to do that whether uh you know we give opportunities for students to uh interact with wetware wednesdays and to do pitches on um apps or products that they're conceptually thinking about but actually making and they can point to it and i i think we have we have to kind of think of how can we do that now as a start to then ultimately find a time and place where even that's blurred. It's not just in this building or in this time, but it's happening all the time. Well, I like I like the the thought that you know the, being able to have a hand in creating the thing that you're interacting with and using to learn it makes it much more interesting to you. Um, you know, before school is. Here is the reality, and we are telling you how to interact with the reality. And what we're moving toward is you create the reality in which these things happen. And it can be as physical as makers, which I love and, and I'm definitely trying to foster in my own kids. But uh, although it is it is also – there are downsides to it. Watching my son do things in Minecraft where he builds an entire cruise ship with staterooms and stairs and beds and windows. And I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, if I, there was no way I could afford enough Lego for him to make that. But in that environment, he has – 
there's no limits to what he can create. And I think kind of going with that approach for helping to engage a student, and I can ask him questions and he can take me around his cruise ship, that's a much better exploration of of uh, how a child learns and how they can uh, interpret the world going forward than, I would say, the old school model. But well, I, think, I, th- I mean, that's a great example. And I, I'm curious to hear what you guys think is the pathways that a student who has learned through some of this innovative environment, um, what is it that they might take with them as they go to college? Uh, and and is there a way that you can point to something that one of your graduates has, has sort of done uh, as a result of your program and said, hey, you know, I think we got a win here? Um, I'm not sure that I can point specifically right now to a, to something that a graduate has taken, but um, I'd have to think about that for a second. But I think that the colleges are a crucial part of this discussion. Um, I think Mark's question about how we measure um, is is crucial, um, and that discussion has to happen now. We have to start getting together, and we have to start talking now about what those measurements look like because the colleges have already begun to try to figure out how to reconceptualize their admissions process in order to give credit for the kinds of things that these kids are doing. If a, if a kid goes out, if a kid from Iolani forms a partnership with a, with a student at Kaimuki High School for the purposes of developing a, a living earth mechanism for measuring the water quality of the streams that, that go between the two schools, um, with the ultimate purpose being kind of a service learning outcome of clean water going into the Alawai, how in the heck does the college then take that outside of just the letter of recommendation from a teacher mm-hmm. or some other traditional method? How does a college know exactly what got done and what it is that they're getting if they admit this person who has done this kind of program? Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. it's both the when and the when do we start this discussion, which is now, Mark. We've got to start the discussion now. And it's also, you know, how do the colleges fit into the discussion as well? Well, Brian, I ha- uh, for you, I have perhaps even a more dangerous question. Uh-oh. Here we now, go. Now, I would imagine that all of your schools, the college pathway is the golden path. It's the next step. It's you've learned as much as you can here, but as you take this next journey, college is the way to go. But I would say that as we start talking about the buzzword of innovation, some people say it's the best and yet most dangerous word in in business, in technology. You know, there is also the belief that college is not the golden path anymore, that we should be preparing students to be independent and entrepreneurs and strike out and look at all of these great folks who never even went to college and they're billionaires now. And so when you're talking about innovation, that is a big flashing light down the street that isn't normally there for other conversations. So how do you how do you address that in your as your uh, as your in your position as chief innovation officer or even just working with your school that there is some messaging out there that that is not necessarily favorable toward college. I think I think I have um two two sides to that one. And as a as an employee of a school that's really what we're doing. We're preparing students for college. As a father of two children Sometimes I wonder about that fifty thousand dollar question. The question about <laughs> if I had fifty thousand dollars a year, or or let's say I had one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Okay, do I pay for my child's education in college, or if she has a great idea, do I seed her startup startup company with one hundred fifty k to have her take a shot at it? Right, and I wrestle with that a lot because in in recent times I'm sort of leaning towards, hey, here's one hundred fifty thousand. Try out your idea. Try and build something. Try and start a company. Because I've been sort of in and out of startups at, at this point um, so often that 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 part really excites me. Um, 
But then that, that's, there's a flip side to that. And, and, so, and the flip side is that we want, I, I also would want her prepared for college. And I would also want her to have a, have a great quality education. And do they have to be mutually exclusive or do they, do they not? Because, you know, she could do both. Um, if I had three hundred thousand dollars, that would be three hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I was going to ask you this for a is, loan. This is going to be a, no. I think we should continue this because I'm I'm really curious to hear about this choice between college or not college and innovation and entrepreneurship post high school. So we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Brian Dote, Casey Agena, and Josh Rapun about innovation in education. And how do you know if innovation is taking hold? We'd of course love to hear from you on Twitter or on the phone at 941-3689 or from the Neighbor Islands 877-941-3689. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. We have an activity here called Sorting People. When and you talk about race. What do I look like to you? Asian. Native American. Everybody says they know it when they see it. White. Hispanic. But they come up with complete confusion uh, um, if they're asked to define it. Race is just like, mm. I don't know. I'm not sure. Race. What really can you say about it? On the next Radio Lab. Saturday morning at 10. One afternoon, two Mormon missionaries visited the comedian Julia Sweeney. And they said they had a message for me from God. I said, well, please, come in. And they looked really happy because I don't think this happens to them all that often. I'm Guy Raz. Faith, belief, and doubt. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday at noon, following New Dimensions. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Brian Dote, Casey Agena, and Josh Rapun about igniting creativity in students. And, of course, uh, if you have a comment or question, that number to call us is at 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Right before the break, we were getting into a very uh, interesting conversation about, uh, you know, the sort of the purpose of high school and and oftentimes uh, it's been assumed in my case uh, that you know high school will lead to college. Uh, but in the case of uh, this idea of innovation and entrepreneurship and, and possibly doing something a little bit different, is college really the path after high school? And is that perhaps even a very bold, innovative step to take? Uh, Josh, what do you think about that? I think that that's the, uh, the landmine question of mm-hmm. the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Boy, there are some sacred cows that uh, that could, could get slaughtered along the way if, as we take up this question. Um, you know, the 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 raison d'être of of Iolani, of course, is putting kids into college, and we do it at a at a phenomenal rate, ninety nine point nine percent. But when you build a building like the Sullivan Center, um, then that question comes up immediately because now you've got kids who are doing things in that in that center increasingly as we finish our first year, and now even more in the second year as kids sign up for classes in the center. Um, and you know that those kids are going to be sparked by what they're doing. They're making, they're hacking, they're, they're doing robotics, they're doing all those things that Casey mentioned before. Um, and so what's going to happen when that kid comes to his parent and says, uh, you know, I actually don't really want to go to college. I want to go work for this particular firm. And this firm is actually going to take me on almost in an apprentice-like way. Um, and I and I thought I think that's such an interesting idea that we might be hearkening back to the old old days when people learned things through apprenticeships that they learned mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. through 
through doing, and they, di they didn't learn them in classrooms. Um, so I think that's one element to it. As a parent, what would I do? Wow. I mean, on the one hand, I'd be jumping for joy because there's $200,000 I don't have to spend. <laughs> um, on the other hand, it's like, wow, is my child going to get that full, broad education, that liberal arts view of the world? Will my child just be a hacker and and really have no other knowledge of the world? Or is my child going to get all of those kinds of things? I'm, I'm kind of curious whether you're seeing any uh, indication from some of the colleges that in graduate school, you are able to work and go to graduate school. Are, are colleges open to the idea as an undergrad, you can work and go to and get your undergrad degree at the same time? In, and maybe in the case of you know, somebody having a great idea and wanting to be in the maker sort of uh, arena, but still have the opportunity to go to college you know, and, and sort of balance work and, and undergrad. Absolutely. Uh, my daughter is uh, just about to graduate from uh, University of California at Santa Barbara. She's held four jobs um, the entire time that she's been there. And I, I, it's, I'm so proud of her for doing that because she's actually managed to graduate on time and she's taken great courses throughout the process. And one of the things that she's come out with as a result of working these jobs is that sense of entrepreneurship. She, mm -hmm. For example, she got a a job working as a valet, parking cars for, you know, parties for the Glitterati in, in Santa Barbara. And, you know, I joked with uh, with my wife at that point about, well, you know, maybe that's what her career is going to be <laughs> as a valet parker. But no, it, it isn't that. It's the fact that she jumped in and lear started learning the business really quickly. And I think that she learned more parking cars, actually, than a few of the courses that she's taken. So I, I, think, I think the answer to the question is the colleges are starting to change. And we need to be talking to them as much as we possibly can mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. what they're doing and what they're making possible. So we got a couple of questions I wanted to take care of, one of which is uh, coming in off of Twitter. And uh, uh, Russell C. asks about the idea that, you know, when we, of course, we've got the three esteemed, you know, private schools here. And innovation can be somewhat quantified in, in the form of, you know, these beautiful buildings and programs that cost a lot of money. How does that translate and this might be a difficult question to answer. How does that translate into the pri public schools? Can public schools be as innovative as the private schools with you know, some of the endowments that you have you know, the luxury of using? Well, you know, I, I, I've definitely been seeing that private-public school uh, partnership mm -hmm. um, being very much um, explicit, seen... Um, that mantra being taken by all of the schools that um, that we represent here, and explicit programs that have come out of that too. Uh, you know, Punahou School uh, with our partnerships and unlimited education opportunities, or the Pueo program, uh, working with uh, over fifty public schools um, around the state, specifically uh, uh, during the the summer, and having students of Punahou students and. Uh, students from the public schools through these programs, working in uh, our robotics courses, um, our rocketry courses, getting that STEM-based uh, type of courses with them and having them working together with Punahou faculty as well as public school faculty. And again, it's that time and space that mindfully being created where it's not just, you know, our schools mm -hmm. and, and this, but it really is a partnership, and that's the only way. If you you know, think, taking a step back and looking at the broader picture of what are we trying to do, and 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 why are we doing it, and how does that impact 
not just me, but us. Um, I think that's where uh, we have to be really thoughtful about what we're doing, why we're doing it. And while we say college, I'm you know stealing that uh, um, um, mantra of college and career readiness. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know I keep hearing that from from our public school partners, from uh, folks at UH Manoa of college and career readiness, and that and. Um, it's not one or the other. If I can jump in real quick, and, and uh, I mentioned early on that I had created a blog that was illustrating what teachers were doing on campus, and um, I think that the same thing applies here. Um, I just think that we don't, um, we don't do enough with our public schools of showing, of showcasing these kinds of uh, innovative things that these public school students are doing. That, that I think we could do a better job of that, and that would then, uh, you know, rising tide would lift all boats in that respect. And then the public-private partnerships would be, in some ways, uh, more real, more authentic, because we would actually not be coming across as sort of paternalistic or, mm-hmm. or you know, that we, we're bringing innovation to you, but that we're actually doing this together because you guys are amazing, and we're doing amazing things, and let's get together and do these amazing things together. You know, we're uh, we're talking to uh, Brian Dote from uh, Mid Pacific Institute and uh, Josh Rapoon from Iolani and uh, Casey Agena from Ponoho, and of course we're talking about innovation. If you got a question to get into the last couple of uh, seconds here of well, last couple of minutes of the show, please call us nine four one three six eight nine or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. And with that, I want to welcome Gus from the Big Island to Bite Mark Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Uh, having me on. Sure. I love what you guys are doing on in the innovation thing. Brother, it's got to start with, like, reducing our classroom size, size in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. Pay the teachers what they're worth, 50000 a year at least, brother. Get the horse before the cart. You guys are like, won't even need to quantify what you're doing. It'll be very obvious. Our our schools are, are archaic. They're they're They're... they're there, we need to rebuild the schools. We need to start new schools. We need to have a university-style consciousness in kindergarten, my friend. You know, the whole Waldorf, the charter school, the Summerhill, the Montessori thing. We're, get, we're shooting ourselves in the foot if we're, we're letting these kids get away from us. But this is the biggest opportunity we have to save the world, is to educate our four-year-olds. And then when they come to you, they'll be ready to go. In the subject. Thanks for taking my call. Sure, absolutely, and thank you for that. And I, I think that your comment and what what we were just talking about about public schools and private schools, it's a it's a bigger problem and a bigger opportunity when you think as the broader community. And we've been seeing innovation in charter schools. We've seen more investment in pre-K education. And I think that th- those are things that we definitely want to support and, and, and continue. Um, so for you, Brian, you know, my dad, my mom, my parents met at Mid-Pacific. Um, oh. But I'm a proud public school graduate. So and I never felt that there were two worlds. They were everybody was interested in advancing the child and creating a better citizen. But um, from, from uh, Mid-Pacific's uh, standpoint. You're doing interaction with uh, public school and public school teachers as well, correct? That I'm actually not aware of, sorry. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, to, to be, to be uh, upfront, I haven't really started yet. I started in August, um, so I'm not sure about the public-private collaborations going on at the school at this point. Well, this is a good opportunity for you to make all the promises you want. <laughs> <laughs> in my first 100 days in office. I see, I see. You know, um, I want to also uh, welcome Elizabeth from Honolulu to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Um, my question is, if 
my child isn't, um, you know, really interested in signing up for a computer class or a robotics class, um, what would you recommend as an area to, uh, to you know, to, to stay up with the times? So, so Elizabeth, where is your uh, daughter going to school? Why did you guess it was a daughter? I didn't say daughter. I said child. <laughs> Where's um, your child going to school? She goes to Iolani, actually. Ah, okay. ah well, I think uh, Iolani has a robotics uh, team. But, uh, Josh, what would your uh, recommendation be? Yeah, what? you know, her interests are in music, in theater, um, in swimming, in hmm. language arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that we're trying to do at Iolani is to um, make it possible for students to take the kinds of courses that are available in the I department, which is the the new department that's in the mm-hmm. Sullivan Center, um, the Department for Applied Studies, to be able to take those courses without sacrificing um, uh, what might be perceived as the college track. Um, so, you know, what we what we want to avoid is having students forced into positions where they cannot take those I department courses because. The college track demands that they take this or that, the AP course, the, um, you know, these other courses that are necessary for um, or at least perceived as necessary for college admissions. So um, what I would encourage you to do is to talk to her, her counselor and um, talk to her grade level teachers and try to figure out a way that you can have a balance of those types of courses because um, you know, it's all it takes is one robotics course to spark you, and once you're sparked, wow, uh, that that makes all the difference in the world. And it, it may happen, it may not happen, um, but I think that it's really worth doing. And so, you know, that that's my advice there. Well, thanks for your call, Elizabeth. And I kind of heard a different question in the sense that I have a daughter, and I was like, hey, let's do robotics, let's do all of this stuff, let's be geeky together. And she is a geek in many, many ways, but she does not have any interest in robotics, and she does not want to program an app. And I was like, what are you interested in? She said, journalism. I said, there's no money in journalism. Pick something <laughs> journalism. else. And she said, drama. I'm like, wrong way. So, Brian... <laughs> You know, again, you see all of these opportunities in these programs, robotics and technology and such, but a student might have more of an interest in the liberal arts, in the arts, in fact, which I think are very important. So how do you find a way to merge the benefits of these these technology innovation programs and something like uh, either swimming or, or art? Well, I think um, the way technology is going, you know, tech and innovation and all of these uh, robotics, for example, will will find themselves propagating throughout all disciplines. Uh, I mean, there's no reason why we can't use 3D printers to come up with cool props in, in an art show or use use an iPad and, and digital media to do something cool and unique in, in dance, for example. So I don't really think that you can encapsulate technology in that way. Um, but what, what I wanted to mention was even outside of courses and what you do in school, there's so many opportunities to inspire these young kids in robotics and electronics and all of these other arenas outside of the classroom, outside of the schools, um, with with the things that are going on in the community, in the greater community, um, the Maker Fair was awesome, mm-hmm. y- you know. And and having having your child just experience things like that may inspire them to go down that path, whether they wanted to or not before they got there. So um, I think taking advantage of all of the activities and events in the community would be a good way to go as well. And I would imagine, Casey, that especially when you're trying to fit all of the classes you need and, and also classes you want to do, that's kind of where summer programs can also be that outlet. And I know at Punahou you have some specific programs that you're doing for, for students in an innovation mindset. Yeah, so you know, piggybacking on what um, Brian is saying, it's uh, 
and even referring back to that previous caller about you know the spaces that we have in early childhood, I, it's you know, I think we look at it as what's happening just in the school and in the classroom and within those walls, and it's really not about that. It's 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 beyond that, and um, I think that's where um, having uh, you know folks like you know all of us here together. Uh, being able to make those connections that um, that we talked about earlier, that you know, there's some content knowledge that can be learned in the classroom, but the context for how they interact, and um, regardless of if they are into the robotics or the swimming or drama, that there's an opportunity for them to have an impact, and the tools that they can learn on how to use it can be very applicable wherever they may go. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we were even you know, thinking about um, classes where, you know, there's this kind of buzz about branding and uh, uh, how does an individual brand themselves and what is their kind of digital footprint out there, regardless if you're a football player or a swimmer or a dancer, who are you and, 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 and what do you do and what are your passions and what, what are you out there? And beyond just your resume and your college application, what, what is that? And regardless of your discipline, you can learn that. And there's some things that you can do from early childhood mm-hmm. all the way through. So, Casey, for your programs at Punho, where can someone go to find more information about those summer programs? Well, definitely go to uh, www.punho.edu slash summer school. You can see all the different programs and uh, definitely take advantage of this summer. Fantastic. And Josh, uh, cool things happening at Iolani? Yes, and you can go to iolani.org and uh, at the homepage there, there are all kinds of possibilities. You can check out the Sullivan Center. I heard there's a fair coming up like sometime next yeah, week. Yeah, there's a fair coming <laughs> up uh, in, uh, the week after next, the weekend after next. And there's yeah, a, so. like maybe a tour of the Sullivan Center? Yes, absolutely. If you would like to have a tour of the Sullivan Center and even better if you wanted to do it with a group, then go ahead and give the school a call and they'll be happy to take you through Sounds the building. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. And Brian, uh, when can we start to see the fruits of your employment? Oh, you can see them today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I officially start August 1st, uh-huh. so we'll see the fruits shortly thereafter. Okay, sounds good. You know, uh, Brendan Brennan says that uh, everyone knows that the winner of this matchup is the University Lab School. <laughs> Maybe we have to have him on sometime. <laughs> rematch, rematch. <laughs> rematch. Round two. Well, Brian Dote is the CIO at uh, Mid-Pacific Institute, and Casey Agena is the director of summer school over at uh, Ponoho. And uh, Josh Rapun heads up the Education Innovation Lab over at Iolani School. And we want to thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we will talk about tracking invasive plants with citizen science. And, of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at ByteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is Casey Harlow. And ex- our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovic. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Maya Vic and a song called On It. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. <laughs> <laughs>